You're listening to episode 23 of the Secret Origins podcast, featuring the origins of the Guardians of the Universe and the Floronic Man. The Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and I'm thrilled to have as my guests the hosts of the Lantern Cast, Chad Bokelman and Mark Marble. First, Chad, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Ryan. Really happy to be back, loving the show, and uh, it's about time I was back anyways. It has been way too long. Listeners will remember that Chad was on for Episode 7 when we talked about the origin of Guy Gardner. Uh, We had a lot of fun there, so I knew I had to bring him back for this one. And Mark, welcome to the show for the first time. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Hopefully we can kick it up a notch now that Chad and I are both here. We can double the Green Lantern energy. Good stuff. We need it. Especially when we're talking about this particular topic. Yeah. Um, So... It is great to have you both on at the same time. Uh, I continue to be a huge fan of the Lantern cast, whether you guys are reviewing the new monthly Green Lantern comics or Chad is revisiting the old hard-traveling heroes era or Mark is talking about you know, Force Friday or new movies with other guests. It's a great show. I always enjoy hearing you guys. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, good, thanks. You're, you're one of the few people who's uh, constantly giving me some feedback on uh, the GLGA spinoffs in particular, so... Thank you for listening, <laughs> and I mean that sincerely. It's it's really just so that I can guilt you into coming onto this. Show. <laughs> oh, okay, buttering me up. I see. After we do after we do episode thirty six, you'll never hear from me again. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to. You know Chad well enough to know you don't need to butter him up. <laughs> you want to come on? Yeah, I'll be on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, some of your listeners may be checking this show out for the first time, and they might not know what Secret Origins is about. Well, Chad could tell them as well as I could in the context of this episode. Uh, Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. Most of them cover a time frame considerably shorter than 5 billion years. But that's where the story of the Guardians of the Universe is a little different. So, uh, guys, I do really want to hear the, your origin stories as they relate to Green Lantern fandom, even though Chad has already shared his before, but I think I'm going to wait for episode 36 for that. So that's where we'll cover the origin of Hal Jordan. And that means, unfortunately, we need to talk about Millennium. <laughs> or, as it's I not, call it. It's better than Threshold. <laughs> okay. I hope. 
okay, I, I can't compare them. Uh, all I can say is that I refer to Millennium as the worst thing in the history of anything. Oh, God, it might be Threshold Chat. <laughs> Just probably Threshold. Well, am I being too hard on it? Do either of you guys like the story? What do you, what do you think? Uh, Millennium was okay. Uh, for a, okay, for, for, at a thousand-foot level, when you tell a Green Lantern fan, oh, um, you know, uh, Millennium was kind of focused around the Guardians and the history of the DC Universe and, you know, evolution and making humans into sort of guardian-like beings, you know, that's really rough encapsulation of it. You're like, oh, oh, cool. Actually, you know what? As a Green Lantern fan, I should really check that out. Uh, and then you read it and go, well, not so much. <laughs> because because as, as we were talking uh, earlier, just like the, the – once you get into it, it's – first of all, it's a wordy SOB. But second of all, there's some nonsensical stuff happening in here. It's There's a lot of Millennium tie-ins, and the tie-ins kill this series because if you're just reading the main series, sometimes you just get thrown right in the middle of something and don't know what the hell happened between issue A and issue B, whatever whatever ones you're reading. But once you really get into it when the Guardians are like teaching people stuff, it's super, super, super wordy and super – Super convoluted. There, there are things like where, for instance, just just pulling a snapshot from one of these one of these issues. I think this is like issue five. Zamoran, This is literally some the dialogue from this story. But just as two is all that one is not, so is four the reverse of three. The nature of nature is sequence, and thus the limitations of three cannot be the end. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's so easy to understand. (laughs) So, I so just just hearing you repeat that dialogue makes me want to hit you. (laughs) It's like I don't, I don't, I don't understand. Like it's just completely, it just goes off the edge. It's almost like you you're reading this and go. Well, no wonder I don't understand what they're talking about. I'm not a candidate for the future of humanity. <laughs> like, and it's such a weird like. Uh, and I get there were there were a lot of tie-ins to this series, probably too many, but mm-hmm. some of the tie-ins were really good because I feel like the tie-ins almost had a completely different agenda. Because in one sense, you got the story of the Manhunters rising up to try and stop the Guardians and stop this plan that they've been working on for a billion years. And with that story, you've got like the regular Manhunter androids, so you can tell like a a robot apocalypse story with that. But you've also got some of the Manhunters that are like sleeper agents that have infiltrated people that we're familiar with, like Wally West's dad or Commissioner Gordon. You know, your popular characters that we've kind of grown to love. So you can tell this really weird story about the about like a secret. Um, Invasion of the body snatchers type of thing, or like, like basically, like you Marvel. say secret invasion. Uh, well, I was actually thinking of Marvel's secret invasion before they did that. You could do that with the Manhunters, and that's what that's what Millennium could have been. It could have been a story about these like alien robots infiltrating us, taking over these people that we know and care about, and sort of infiltrating humanity and bringing the superheroes down from the inside. But that was only the story of a couple of the tie-ins. The main story, the main miniseries, which was eight issues. As you were just saying, Chad, was just this talky philosophical mess about these these old blue Smurfs preparing <laughs> eight candidates to be the new part superheroes, part godlike beings, and it spun off into a series that was canceled within a year because nobody cared about these people. It was 
Ah, uh, Mark, have you even read it? I have not read the proper series, though. But good, good. <laughs> which, which is funny because, we, like, we were talking before we we started, you know, this episode. That when I read this issue, the the, the issue we're going to be talking about today, the Guardian story, it kind of made me a little a little intrigued about exactly what Millennium was. So I went and I did a little a little research, you know, last night. Reading about the storyline and how it, what happened in it, and how it played out, and like, and that version, a term we we've heard a gazillion times since, New Guardians, <laughs> but but the New Guardians were, you know, what what ended up happening or didn't happen to them after Millennium, and it's like, I don't know if I'm gonna watch. Maybe I shouldn't read the series. You are missing nothing by skipping it. <laughs> you got all the relevant Guardian stuff in this issue. <laughs> The series was written by Steve Englehart and drawn by Joe Staten, if I remember correctly, and they were the, you know, the architects of Green Lantern for a while. I liked their stuff around and before Crisis on Infinite Earths, and not so much after that. What do you guys think? I mean, just kind of looking at that era, like the the late '80s era of Green Lantern and Green Lantern Corps. I mean, I think. Uh, even though Sean Engle didn't really get to those particular issues. Uh, I think the, when Sean Engel was doing his Just One of the Guys podcast, shout out to that podcast, even though it's you know, now over. But uh, one of the things that he did very well was highlight how the early 90s era, we're talking pre-Emerald Twilight, pre-Kyle Rayner, how the early 90s era can be undercut You know, when you're, when you're talking about Green Lantern stories. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Same with the 80s. There's a lot. I mean, it's, it's, it's the 80s, <laughs> but there's a, there's a lot of crazy stuff in there, but there's a lot of really good stuff, too. And I, even though there, there are times, I haven't yet had a chance to go through everything. I've just recently come into having either physical or digital copies of every single issue of Green Lantern all the way from All-American number 16. So I'm sort of kind of getting new, getting into reading every single main Green Lantern title since the 1940s. But from what I remember, there was, just like any other comic series, there was some good and there was some bad. And the good that was in there is often skipped over by some of the more prominent series that, you know, like Sandwiches. So, you know... On one side, you've got Emerald Twilight, and on the other side, you've got the hard-traveling hero stuff with Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. Mm-hmm. Those two uh, sandwich points, if you, if you will, kind of oversh- overshadow the stuff in between. Uh, but there is some good stuff in there. He said it more eloquently than I think I was going to say it. But uh, yeah, I would say that, that the era we're talking about, the Millennium Era or the Crisis Era, probably isn't the golden age of Green Lantern stories. <laughs> Overall, it's not what, where I would say it's you know it doesn't have the social relevance of the stuff in the seventies and even the nineties before we got into Emerald Twilight you know, during the Gerard Jones run and stuff there were there were there were some good stories told during that run and there were some interesting concepts being thrown about so I don't yeah I don't I don't think the time frame that you know it's not the it's not the era you're going to look to probably and go yeah I think that was the best of all time probably probably wouldn't rank probably wouldn't be like in the top three or four I don't think if you were going by decades <laughs> probably not actually when you think about it because John's dominated you know probably the 2000s up to this point at least for a 10 year span and and Mars and Banks were in the 90s so I think you got and then you have the 70s so you already have like pretty much like three decades that are already knocking the 80s out of the water <laughs> I think it also has to do with the fact that what is the 80s known for in comics? You know, The Dark Knight Returns, you know, Watchmen and stuff like that. You've got all these crazy, innovative, dark comics. 
mm-hmm. for lack of a better term. But how do you take the popularity of series like that, series like Sandman and, and stuff like that, and translate it into a space cop adventure? Like, how do you make that dark and gritty and cool? Like, there's there's way too much happening in this era of comics for someone to look at the 80s Green Lantern stuff and go, well, that was... Uh, up on par with Watchmen or you know, <laughs> something like that. So it, 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 it kind of suffers from the era in which it takes place. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, Green Lantern is a space fantasy wish fulfillment story that I don't think necessarily lends itself to that kind of dark and gritty storytelling. But they were going to try because it worked for Batman, so naturally <laughs> it had to work for every one of their characters. Anyway, folks, we are going to take a quick promotional break, and when we come back, we will talk about the origins of the Guardians of the Universe. To tell you the story of Green Lantern is to tell you the story of the birth of a universe, the origins of DC as a whole. It's a magic emerald meteor from space in the 1940s. It's the establishment of the JSA. It's the birth of the Silver Age. It's the introduction of a universal police force. It's the formation of the JLA. It's the emergence of the multiverse. It's a crisis in both space and time. It's an emerald dawn. And it's an emerald twilight. It's the brightest day. And the blackest night. And the Lantern cast covers all of this and everything in between. We're Green Lantern's greatest advocates and fiercest critics. We've been fans for years, and it's the reason we're self-proclaimed Lanternologists. So find us on iTunes and Stitcher and give us a listen, because the history of Green Lantern really is the history of the DC Universe, and we've got the interviews, commentaries, reviews, and more to back it up. Secret Origins, issue 23, sports a February 1988 cover date, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the issue would have hit the streets on October 20th of 1987. The cover was drawn by Ed Hannigan with inks by Steve Bissett and features a Millennium Week 6 blister. Mark, what do you think of this cover? I like the Guardians on it, (laughs) but the Floronic Man there... (laughs) It kind of looks like a, a Swamp Thing wannabe, like wearing a green diaper. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. It, 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 the cover, I think that it's like too great taste that maybe, or maybe not so great taste, but, but <laughs> too, let's, let's be generous, too great taste in quotes that don't taste great together. <laughs> I think the Guardians don't really, I don't know. It really seems like an odd pairing. You know why, based on Millennium? Because the Floronic Man does factor into, you know, the, the quote-unquote new Guardians. But it just, just on the surface, outsider looking in and looking at the cover, and he, 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 he seems really odd. And the Guardians just seem like Guardians, so. He looks like a rejected He-Man figure. Yes, actually, he does. <laughs> I think that's a good point. He does, and that green diaper, and I don't know. Yeah. It's, he's, then the Guardian, even the Guardians are looking like, what the hell are we doing with this guy? <laughs> oh, this is shameful. Chad, what do you think? <laughs> um, this... Okay, so the the Secret Origins series is not necessarily known for having the most epic covers of any series out there, just because of some of the utter absurdity of the the team. I will concede that that point. As somebody who has spent a lot of time looking at these covers, I will concede that most of them are not great. And however, there have been times where the cover comes out looking 
decent or actually surprisingly good despite the pairing that's on the cover like right now <laughs> peeling back the fourth <laughs> wall I'm, I'm 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 listening to your jonah hex black condor co- uh, coverage right so you're well, listening to that not, as we're talking <laughs> no, you're no. multitasking like that that's it's it's a really good multitask i'm really behind on my podcast guys <laughs> uh, no uh, but it sounds like despite the fact that black condor is more prominent than jonah hex it still comes out an actually fairly okay cover despite the pair, pairing of those two characters. This one, not so much. Now, I, the name didn't click with me, Ryan. You're, you're more versed in comics overall than I am. Would we have known this artist from something else huge or is just just sort of a DC house style kind of somebody they had on staff? Uh, Ed Hannigan, he did a lot, but he didn't have a whole lot of sustained runs. He did a lot for Marvel in the early 80s. For DC, he did some Batman, he did some Detective, he did some, actually, Jonah Hex, which I just mentioned. Probably his, his longest sustained run was he, he worked on the Green Arrow book of the late 80s that Mike Grell was writing. Gotcha. Okay. I think more than anything, I think the inker, Steve Bissett, I think had, had done more with, uh, with the Swamp Thing books, and that's probably what his connection was. With the Floronic Man, okay, because it's it's odd you mentioned you mentioned the inker because I think this this cover uh, and maybe it's just a digital copy that I have of it, mm-hmm. uh, maybe it's a poor scan or something, uh, but I think this digital the, the, this this cover is really ink heavy. I'm not an artist, so I have no idea if that's even the right. Maybe for all I know, maybe the colors are too similar. Or it's I have no idea. The Floronic Man is obviously front and center here and it's bam floronic man in your face and it's kind of the guardians around that Mm -hmm. but it's not unfortunately it's not one of those random pairings that somehow still work for me art wise Mm -hmm. um i mean when you flip through the back issue bins and you see this cover pop out at you you're like well that's interesting but you don't look at it and go oh wow (laughs) the guardians i'm gonna read this story (laughs) you put it back slowly into the box (laughs) and walk away walk away (laughs) this was one of those things where these are two completely opposite ideas two completely opposite character types and i don't think they found a way of blending them together you got this weird plant creature in the middle with these trees and the guardians are sitting in there actually this looks like the most disappointing christmas tree of all time (laughs) (laughs) Where are our presents? We are most displeased. (laughs) So the secret origin of the Guardians of the Universe, uh, the story is written by Todd Klein, and the penciler is Jonathan Peterson, inks by Al Vey. Just to kind of start us off, some of the the text just kind of sets everything up. Since his beginnings, man has probed the question of age. The Earth, he estimates, came into being about 4.6 billion years ago, in a universe already ancient. But those are numbers only a physicist could love. Let us speak of lifespans. What are the oldest living things on our world? They are down here, in California. No, not the Redwoods. Beyond, in the Green Lantern Corps Citadel. Two honored visitors are about to tell a tale of lifespans older than the Earth itself. And we meet Harupa and a Zamoran, whose name escapes me at the moment, as they are 
within the confines of the Millennium storyline, about to tell these candidates for immortality and great power their history of the universe and, and their history personally within the universe to get them ready to take their place as guardians of the future, quote unquote. <laughs> the little caption box says, confused, catch up on Millenniums 1 through 5. Well, good, because we are confused, and that's probably not going to make it any better. Uh, but anyways, one of the candidates says, you know, re- essentially, are we all supposed to just take this at face value? So they kind of form a Vulcan mind meld, and everybody kind of goes into the past of Earth just to see, you know, kind of a glimpse of the power of the Guardian and the Xamaron, and then they start going into the origin of themselves as a species, It began 10 billion years ago, plus some, and the planet Maltus is formed. Uh, And as this planet goes through its own evolutionary stages, so too do these little microscopic things that they call symbiotes, whatever, and no, we're not talking venom and carnage. And these microscopic creatures are capable of communing with all life on Maltus. And basically they're their message, their core message to all living things is together we fight best, eat best, live best. And as the Maltusians grow um, and develop uh, on the planet, they seek out, they, they, they purposely seek to develop their minds and their science. They pass on this knowledge, but although this civilization that this knowledge is passed on to becomes strong and knowledgeable and, and, and they use the word mighty – it also becomes very arrogant, and eventually these races split in two, and there's a great, just like in any civilization, I suppose, a great civil unrest, and everybody fights one another, and these little symbiotes, or whatever you want to call them, midi-chlorines, <laughs> if, you, yes. if you'd like. They are midi-chlorines. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There is a, a disease inflicted upon the, the populace, and it affects everybody on both sides of the divide between these races. The people who aren't affected are people in out in solitude, men and women out in solitude, who have been kind of secluding themselves to work to understand the, the universe and kind of sit back and watch things as they develop. Well, they say their, their own symbiotes, symbionts, uh, confirm all this knowledge that they've been gathering that the, the disease that had affected their culture is not gone. It's just dormant. So they go to their, uh, their the, the women of their populace. They, essentially, this is like if Amazon, the, the Amazons of Themyscira were on Maltus. This is a, a race of women that are completely separated from the men and living by their own kind of code. And they, they agree to team up with these men, these scientifically minded men, to continue their their species and kind of fight the disease and kind of share knowledge and, and stuff with one another. Well, as they learn from one another, they become immortal. Uh, it's the final gift, quote unquote, that the symbionts have to give to the major races on this planet. And one of the beings born from this new cooperation between Guardian and what will eventually become Xamaron is born and raised, quote-unquote, by Krona. Uh, Krona, who you will know um, in a moment. And it's Harupa, the guardian telling the story. Well, Harupa 
is ignored by Krona as he's in the midst of experiments. Sound familiar? Harupa goes off to seek companionship, and he finds one of the Zamoran young girls, and they grow up and, and learn together. Now, throughout all of this, Krona is having his experiment where he's reaching back to the forbidden knowledge at the beginning of time where he sees the hand that created the universe and so on and so forth, and then he's judged and banished, of course, by by the uh, his fellow men. Um, the the Guardian and the Zamoran are separated from each other. By interacting with each other, they, they realize all their species can accomplish by no longer being separated from one another. But culturally, they're still, they're pulled apart. Um, throughout the ages, as they grow older, they realize that the evil that Krona has re- unleashed into the universe is growing and growing and growing, and it needs to be staved off and and uh, stopped and stemmed, if you were. So they decide to go into the center of the universe, both men and women, the best of uh, uh, the best and the brightest, pile into these ships and go off to Oa. And while there, the women are culturing giant gardens and stuff like that. The men are building cities. They're creating the central power battery on Oa. They're also gathering all the random magic in the universe and casting it out. The star heart, as we learned in Secret Origins number 18. This drains a great many of them. The Guardians then create the Manhunters, which we learned about last issue. The Manhunters eventually, they're supposed to be the police force for the Guardians to help them combat the evil in the universe. Well, the Guardians uh, are betrayed by the, the Manhunters and attacked. Uh, the Oa is attacked by the Manhunters. The Manhunters think that Krona was an Owen or a Maltusian or whatever you want to call him. And because Krona had it within him, so do these, so too do these beings. And that must mean that they are the root of this evil. So that's why they combat the Guardians. They eventually lose. And the Guardians, the, the men are once again split down the middle. Um, some, you know, say, you know, how can you let them live on in any form? You know, we refuse to give up any control. And that is when the Guardians split off again. Some remain there on Oa, and the others, called the Controllers, go off into space to do their own thing. The Zamorans, or what will become the Zamorans, the women, they uh, are in anguish over the ruin that has happened since the the Manhunters attacked. So they decide to split off, and this is when they become the Zamorans. The Guardians, not content and not able to... uh, police the universe on their own, continue their sort of police force experiments and come up with the battery ring concept. And they recruit various participants for this, this, uh, this process. The Green Lantern Corps is created. We see glimpses of Hal Jordan and, and many others. There are several failures towards the beginning, but by and large, the use of sentient beings pays off in, in unexpected ways. Um, then the... Uh, one of the Zamorans, uh, Nadi, the one that grew up with, with Harupa, um, comes back and says, you guys were so busy doing your thing that you didn't notice we left. Uh, and it's too late. They are leaving. While Harupa is kind of you know, uh, talking to, to Nadi, his, he's distracted and the Green Lantern that he's in charge of dies. And he bears that guilt and refocuses and retasks himself. Um, 
they talk about their failures with Sinestro. They talk about their failures uh, and their con- conflicts that they went up against during the crisis. They talk about how in the uh, Green Lantern Corps uh, miniseries, the three-issue miniseries, uh, um, they went up against Krona again. Krona came back. It's a whole thing. So then they talk about what happened in Green Lantern number 200 um, a while, uh, just a few issues prior in the Green Lantern series. The Zamorans and the Owens, the, the Guardians, decide to go off and replenish their energies and repopulate their numbers. Then at the end of the story, these candidates each kind of take their own little thing away from it, one of which uh, kind of sums it up as, you have opened this one's eyes to learn we must know the limitations of the teacher. And that ends the story. And the revelations continue in Millennium Number 6 on sale this week. <laughs> All right. Thank you for... <laughs> Thank you for taking that bullet for the team. How many pages is this one? Because it, fe- even though it's super wordy, am I am I just feeling it's longer than it really is, or is this one of the longer stories in the Secret Origins when it comes to being sp- split down the middle um, with two different characters? It's twenty one, and it was usually the Roy Thomas issues that got to be like the full twenty one or twenty two pages. Even though Roy Thomas didn't contribute to this one because he did all of the Main Hunters one on the issue before this, this felt like a longer story. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, I mean, they, uh, you kind of mentioned it. They're, they're packing the entire history of the DC universe into this uh, in one sense. It was a story that was kind of hard to get into, especially when you, as, as we all, as we had talked about before, the whole midi-chlorian thing <laughs> about how the old, you know, the microscopic stuff talking to them and controlling them and going inside them and giving them advice. And it's like, uh, that didn't get it, get it off to a great start because as soon as I saw that first little circle with the, with the microorganisms, it's like, oh, God, it looks like the midi-chlorian thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think as the story went on, I think it, I, it didn't bother me. It seemed to flow a little better, I should say. There's some beats in the story that you know you kind of expect, like Krona, as Chad and I are dealing with <laughs> in our regular podcast. Every time, every time Krona shows up, you just kind of wait for him to do something shitty. You know, it's just, it's just, even the look on his face. I mean, in that one panel when you know Harupa there, like it's like, come play with me. And he's like, no, I got all. When I saw that panel, I just saw Norman Osborn and Harry Osborn. It's like, get out of here, you reject. I got things to do. It is weird seeing you know a, a young like. Fully, fully sized guardian, like in love with you know, kind of like the Flash Gordon, Luke Skywalker look about him. Yes. Just like normal skin-colored Zamorans now, it's weird because of everything we've we've gone through. Right. Uh, and as the story plays out, there are things that I picked up on that make you wonder, like the war with the Manhunters. It's like, it's like it lasted like a thousand years, and it would have lasted longer if, if it wasn't for the fact that we figured out, hey, let them recharge their weapons with their battery, and then it will stop them. <laughs> it took you a thousand years to figure that out. <laughs> the omnipotent guardians of the universe. Oops. <laughs> uh, I like the way it tied into Green Lantern 200, because that's another thing that Chad and I <laughs> we, we discussed, so it kind of brings back brings back memories of that uh and it's nice and it's nice to see a quote-unquote human guardian who isn't ganthet <laughs> kind of a nice touch though i love ganthet but it's kind of a nice touch to have somebody other than ganthet and say and not counting the templar guardians now to actually have some personality and some humanity to them so i think that's but it was not the most action-packed or enthralling story let's be honest. no and you you kind of both mentioned how it, it feels like it's starting slower it feels like it's long i think 
in part of that, it, like the first couple pages, it's like a textbook describing like the history of a civilization, how they adapt over millennium. Eh, is that word? Uh, hate. <laughs> um, and it, I, th- I think the story sort of really begins when we have a protagonist, somebody to care about, yes. which is Harupa, which doesn't start until page seven. Uh, that's when we really get to see Krona, who we know, you know, every oh yeah, something something's gonna go wrong. Um, and I did like the way that their their stories were tied together. That it was while Krona was basically birthing evil into existence. This is at the same time that Harupa is discovering love, and it's kind of a nice sort of I don't know juxtaposition there. Chad, you had to narrate this thing for us. What did you think of the story? I mean, as a story now. You were gracious enough to play one of our promos uh, before uh, one of our t- two pre-recorded promos on your show in the past, and that was our kind of you know more loosey goosey kind of fun promo. Um, th- our other one, we make a statement basically that the green la- the the story of the Green Lantern as a character, as a concept, as a mythos, is the story of the DC universe as a whole. That's what I like about this story. I mean, what I do like about it, other than what you mentioned about, you know, when the story kicks off, really, you give it a basis, a character to focus on with Harupa and Nadi. Um, Other than that, my main takeaway from this is regardless of its context within Millennium, you still get the feeling that this is a story of the beginnings of the DC universe as a whole. I mean, you get... And not only do you get the Guardians and Maltas and stuff like that, but you also go, oh, here are the Zamorans. Oh, here are the Controllers. You know, oh, here are the Manhunters. Oh, here are the Green Lantern Corps uh, and stuff like that. And I, if, if I'm not mistaken, and I kind of skipped over this in the recap, in one of those panels, is is that the Zamorans creating the, the Star Sapphires? Yeah, they're doing their own thing while the Guardians are kind of playing around with the ring and the battery concept that they're discovering the crystals. Yeah, and you get Krona, and by getting Krona, you get the explanation of the crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's this is this this the origin of the Guardians of the Universe is literally the tied into the origin of the DC Universe as a whole, from its birth to its destruction, quote unquote, if you will. So, and regardless of the context of Millennium, and regardless of the supposed quality or lack of quality of the story depending on your perception of it it still gets across that point that there's a lot of information here guys (laughs) and we only had 21 pages to put it in (laughs) so going back to the crisis because you mentioned it we do get that obligatory panel that shows us something of the crisis on page 19 but this is who they chose to feature in this panel. <laughs> We've got the monitor and the anti-monitor and big sort of background. And then squaring off, like they're, you know, the titans of these two sides, Hal Jordan in his civilian garb. Uh, Chip, I think, or um, who's the one before Yeah, it's Chip. Chip. It is Chip. Yeah, it okay. is Chip. And Tomar yeah. Ray facing off against Sonar, the shark, and the key. <laughs> who's that titans, in the background? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it matters because this is when you think of Crisis on Infinite Earths. I don't think this is the cast of characters that you necessarily think of. 
then <laughs> not to mention you 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 had to throw Hal in there. You already showed Hal several times in this issue. Right. You couldn't throw John Stewart, <laughs> who was actually Green Lantern at the time of the crisis, in here. Oh, and no, we, we need Hal in his civilian garb. <laughs> we get John and Cat Matui throughout this in, in part of the framing narrative, and every time I see them, I kept thinking, "Boy, I'd rather be reading the secret origin of John Stewart and Cat Matui." <laughs> Um, or Chip, <laughs> or, yeah, or Tomar Ray, not or... even not even translated into English, just Chip. <laughs> Everything that you were saying, Chad, I agree with, and I like that idea that they are, in a sense, telling the story of these guardians who have been there for billions of years, and how Krona's whole actions retroactively created the evil at the beginning of time. All of that is great. It's really cool, and I like what they're doing. But the framing device of, of how they set this up, because it is this millennia, you get Nadia and Harupa telling the story to their mentees, and it just felt like this bizarre science fiction episode of How I Met Your Mother. Because, Suit up! <laughs> because that's the story. It's how it's how they came to love each other and how they basically just they said, you know what, we've got to leave the Green Lanterns to their own devices, but our love is still special. And it's like they're holding hands together at the end, kind of you like see that they've got like this special, wistful look in their eyes as they just impart in this lesson. And they're like, hopefully you'll you'll get this when you're older, you new guardians. And it's like, oh my god, I hate this. There Not were- all the art is great, but some of the ish- but some of the art is. There are some moments. And, okay, and that led me to something interesting because I looked up. This is probably the most bizarre creative team I have ever come across in any comics. So the writer, Todd Klein, is best known as a letterer. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he has probably lettered hundreds, if not thousands, of comics. I'm friends with him on Facebook. Are you really? Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and he written comparatively few, at least at this time, and I'd say comparatively, like, before this issue, he had written 30 comics. That's not nothing. But given the number of comics that he had just lettered, so it's it's weird that this this felt like... I mean, uh, he had read some... He had written some of the uh, Green Lantern backup strips, as I'm sure you know, from Green... Or the Green Lantern Corps backups. And I just wonder if Steve Englehart was just too busy writing the main book and Green Lantern, and he's like, I, I, you, you've heard all of these stories before, you can just cobble something together... Um, but also the penciler, Jonathan Peterson, this was his second penciling gig, and also his last one, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. After this, he was just a writer, and he wrote a dozen or so comics. So it's just like, who were these people that they just like kind of plucked out of nowhere to tell this story? And, I mean, given that, like the story isn't, it's not poorly told, it's not poorly drawn, it's fine, it's a serviceable story. I, there are aspects of it that I don't like, but it's not a fault of either the writing or the or the art. It's more of just the the way this was editorially handled as part of this storyline that I hated. But it was just weird when I found out who these who the writer and artists were. Like that, neither of them were. This wasn't. It felt like people who just like this wasn't their primary profession. It is interesting. Yeah. I did mean, you, did you friend Todd Klein because of his connection to Green Lantern? Uh, no, actually, uh, just because of his, uh, interest specifically in lettering, uh, I, I think I friended him on Facebook right around the time I started the Ragman blog, mm. uh, because he, I, I'd stumbled across his website where he kind of breaks down who created what, like, you know, recognizable logos and how they were created and stuff like this. And I was looking for information on how the Ragman title logo was created and I found his entry and, 
found him on Facebook and it kind of evolved from there. But it's it's interesting. It's actually, it's, I think it's KleinLetters.com. Okay. Uh, just for anybody out there who wants to check it out. He not only does the breakdowns of how these various title logos were created and who created them. Obviously, the more basic ones are, you know, not really that interesting um, other than who, who and why. Um, but the ones that are more interesting, like, for instance, the Ragman logo, where there's a lot of stuff happening within it. Um, how that works is actually really interesting, and he gives you great insights on that, being such a well-known letterer. Mm-hmm. But he also does sort of really encapsulated reviews on current comics. Um, in, in, every now and then I'll see one pop, pop up in my feed, and he calls them, and then I read. Yeah, so if you're, if you're curious about the history of the lettering specifics of the DC Universe and steeped in the industry kind of person's view, uh, macro view, of current comics, then yeah, Klein's the guy to check out. <laughs> cool, cool. I like that. But there's a lot happening in this issue because it, it really is the history of the DC universe. And because there's so much, I just feel like there's <laughs> there's so much artistically happening in every panel that there are little weird, wonky-looking moments here and there. Mm-hmm. I think my favorite panel in the book is... Uh... Page eleven, I think it is, when in the center, the center panel, when Harupa's about to, when they're all boarding the ships to leave for Oa, he kind of has this combination of uh, like Adam Warlock and Emperor Palpatine yep. costume, but just I like the way he's motioning with his hand and the way they're all getting on the continuing the Star Wars analogy. It's like when when all the clones are marching into the ships at the end of Attack of the Clones. <laughs> There's just something about that panel and and the like. You know the internal, the the psychological uh, dialogue that's going on between Nadia and Harupa. I kind of I like that too. So some, just something about that panel that just grabbed me. Plus, I think anytime you see an oversized, normal size, a human sized guardian, even though they're still blue, it just kind of throws you off. Other than Krona. <laughs> so I was gonna say, as this is part of his story, I wonder if this is how Harupa pictures himself as this like you know awesome like tall blonde, fair-haired like blonde-haired like probably has like a surfer's body and like abs and everything like, oh yeah I'm totally hot. but like everybody else sees them the way they looked in the green lantern movie as just these <laughs> old gaunt creepy looking things with giant heads and fishbowl on their heads yeah. <laughs> my thinking cap <laughs> you know throughout i'm sure these people existed and although i'm not sure how in the majority they were. Uh, I'm assuming people reading the Secret Origins series as it came out were more of already comics fans as opposed to people going, oh, this series covers the origin of all these characters. This is the perfect jumping on point for me to understand more about the DC universe. I don't really believe that that was a majority of the people reading the series, but I like to think that there's a few of them out there who thought like that, because I would. Mm-hmm. And just kind of looking at this, I wonder if there being so much of it, you know, to us, it made it feel like a longer story, but I wonder if to them, it was like too much, like just overwhelming because for example, and I didn't mention it in talking about how this is the story of the the DC universe as a whole, the panel where it's one panel guys, where they mention the banishment of magic Mm -hmm. that seeds Alan Scott the Starheart, it's it's the Starheart is involved in a whole lot of various magic characters, whether it's a, a primary source or just kind of a secondary interaction or something like that. This this one panel 
is a big section of, of the DC universe. So I have no idea if someone read this and went, wait, what, what? <laughs> like, you're, hold on. What? <laughs> so I'm, I'm just wondering if the, they, in their, it, it, by striving to include so much history uh, with these characters and, and try and be as faithful to it as possible, I wonder if they were sacrificing those few readers who were like, just coming into the DC universe and reading this as a way as a gateway into it by just going, Oh, Holy crap. This is, this is way too much. Like this is, I need to sit down. Uh, Not only, not only are you giving me all this history of the DC universe here with these, this group of characters, you're also telling me now I need to go read millennium. (laughs) Not even just encouraging it. Like usually if they had, you know, if they, there was an editor's note that, you know, for more information, check out this issue or this issue or something. But right on the first page, the note we get is confused, catch, <laughs> catch up in Millennium issues one through five, then meet us back here. Basically acknowledging if this doesn't make sense to you and it really shouldn't, go buy five other comics and then read this one. That's uh, okay. You probably could have made this more new reader accessible. And I think a lot of times, I think Secret Origins tried to be as new reader accessible as they could, but with these, when you've got a tie-in, then obviously it's not. This is meant to to be supplementary to another another series. Right. So, did you guys have any other specific thoughts about this story? Not really. I think it's uh, just kind of, kind of in terms of what we were just talking about. It's funny that this is this is entitled "The Secret Origin of the Guardians." of the universe. One of my prized possessions that I have in my collection is Green Lantern number 40. I'm right. holding it right now. Nice. Uh, and it's, it is entitled the secret origin of the guardians. If I'm not mistaken, this is one of the first such uh, DC comics with this tie, the secret origin title. Mm-hmm. I don't, don't know. Um, but this is, it's almost like you read this book and you read Green Lantern 40 and you're like, I think they could have told this a little better within the confines of some action or something like that. Did did you have to tie it into Millennium? And when you read Green Lantern 40, which is also an appearance, uh, the the first uh, crossover of Alan Scott uh, and Hal Jordan uh, in the Silver Age and the explanation of the multiverse. I mean, yeah, you get Flash of Two Worlds, Flash 123 is you know, touted as a huge issue for, you know, the fans of the multiverse and stuff like that. Well, <laughs> like one tick underneath that is Green Lantern 40. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just kind of feel like it's, it's kind of weird reading this issue and also having it being so familiar with Green Lantern 40 by comparing the two and going, eh, there might've been a better way to do this. I've come across that before in this series. I've read some of the the versions that were retold in this series and compared them to the originals and thought, you know what, the original one told a better, more concise story. Like they 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 puffed it up or they overcomplicated it with new continuity and new history in the in the newer version and it's sometimes it weighed it down, sometimes it just didn't flow as well. Uh-huh. Um so yeah, I I've had that happen before. I've seen it before in this series. Let's actually talk about the Guardians because they've been I mean, I believe they debut in, in Green Lantern issue one. I think that was their first appearance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and throughout that, I mean, they at, at the time that this this book came out, they had been around for those 25 years, always kind of a, that supporting role. What do you guys think about 
we kind of teased this beforehand, but their evolution and their devolution <laughs> over the uh, over the course of their comics history. I I don't know. It's really hard to, for me at this point to take a look at the Guardians and really be one hundred percent sure how I really feel about them because most of the time, you know, when I when I really started getting into Green Lantern, it was pretty much after when there's some people who listen to our show know it was after pretty much after Kyle got got his ring and then retroactively I became more interested in Hal because he was Parallax mm-hmm. I became much more interested in reading more about Hal so in a way so Kyle kind of got me into Hal if you will so mm-hmm. but so even during that time it's like you know the guardians still were kind of jerks Ganthet, of course was the exception but the you know the guardians were always you know we know we know best and we we're, we're going to be inflexible Following another underlying theme, for whatever reason, it's kind of happened in this issue. Following a Star Wars analogy, that they they kind of became like the Jedi Council, yeah. the Jedi Council that we, we the way we saw play out in the prequels, how they were they were just too arrogant and they were too short sighted and they wouldn't look beyond what you know, things had to be a certain way. You couldn't be flex, you know. And that's kind of what, and that's kind of how the Guardians have been at least, at least from the '90s on. They've kind of always been relatively relatively inflexible with a, an occasional crack, you know, in the in that, you know, facade. It would kind of crack once in a while. Mm-hmm. Obviously, once Jeff Johns took over, he, you know, it, it kind of steered off into another area where the Guardians went from kind of like being constantly being arrogant and schemers to having this whole <laughs> aspect of undermining, <laughs> undermining the entire universe at some point because we know best. So I think... So, Basically, every five issues, he would de- he would reveal another dark secret of the Guardians. That's right. To go to go along with the rest of the ten the ten new laws in the Book of Oa that we never got. <laughs> we got like how many did we get, Chad? Like three or four. That was about it. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, that they were all originally written at one time, but then they weren't, and they were kind of leaked once in a while. I was like, eh. oh, by the way, we'll tell you about this one today. So, I think a lot of people tend to agree that. That's quite kind of pushed the Guardians a little too far, because up to that point, the Guardians had always you always believed, and even kind of like even what I think Hal had even said this that uh, that he always kind of believed that the guard you know especially at least up until the events of Emerald Twilight that you know he he kind of always did what he was told even though we didn't agree with him most of the time or a lot of the time because he b- believed they had the greater good in mind, mm-hmm. and because of their wisdom and because of their power he you know, eventually would acquiesce and go, you guys are older, smarter, more powerful than I, so I'm going to go along with it, even though I still think you're full of crap. <laughs> so th- that aspect of the Guardians, okay, that maybe the way, you know, they're cold and they're relatively emotionless and, they're, and they don't know how to relate to living beings, especially as they get further and further removed from their, you know, their, their, their origins. That, okay, that's, that's something different. But then when you get it where, you know, they're just completely warped and evil, kind of like how it was, went down that during the end of the John's run, which made it made for an interesting story, but it kind of, I think it bastardized the Guardians a little bit too much. So I think that's kind of why the, you know the Templar Guardians at least were, at least have hope to mm-hmm. kind of bring bring some of the humanity back. Of course, depending on where the Templar Guardians are, since we haven't seen them in a long time. <laughs> it was cool to show Hal and the Green Lanterns as being sort of rebels who were kind of you know just. And the, and the Guardians are just like the parents who don't understand, and it kind of created that nice contrast when you've got this arrogant and flappable and shakable kind of like authoritarian figure for the Guardians. But 
John's kept on pushing that and pushing that until he made it okay. Well, they're not just these—they're not just super strict, but they're also like hiding these dark sins and these dark secrets, and they're going to blow up in their face, and they're going to—they're going to rewrite new laws and change new things to cover their mistakes, and that's going to lead to this new corruption. And just every storyline just seemed to paint them as darker and more sinister until the point where they were basically outright villains and they needed to be written out of the Green Lantern's story. And I think when you get that, you have a problem because the Green Lanterns should not be there, should not police themselves. I think that is a problem for the story when when everybody looks like to Hal Jordan and says, "You're our new leader." Okay, that that might be interesting in the short term, but I think it's not going to lead to to good stories in the long term. And you guys can speak more to that because you've been covering the Green Lantern books since John's departure. Do you think the Guardians are necessary for the Green Lantern core? Because I think they are. I think they're an integral part, and they're that constant, like Perry White or, or Lois Lane. They always need to be in the Green Lantern's world. I think they need to be there long term. I think you can, like you kind of mentioned, short you short term for a certain period of time, you could have either they, they could be absent or you could have less influence from them. Kind of like what happened even in the John's, the post John's era, with the way the Templar Guardians, mm-hmm. they were there, but you know, but in the beginning they didn't hang around. You know, they felt they needed to go basically be beat cops in a way to kind of learn, learn, learn firsthand some of the stuff in the universe and to, or so they told us anyway. Whether that if that's the true reason why they you know palled around with Kyle or not entirely, but that was how what they said in the beginning. That's you know we we want you basically to show us because we've been locked up literally for so long, but we don't feel we're in a Kind of like the idea of how you know viewing the world from behind the desk is a dangerous thing. You know mm-hmm. that 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 kind of concept that they need to get out there and and see more of the universe and live more before they're in a position to come back and kind of feel comfortable even having the authority to say this is right and this is wrong. And so, but I do I do agree. I think there's something missing when there's when there aren't any guardians. Just like there's something missing when there's no Oa. <laughs> mm-hmm. I like Mogo and Mogo's cool. But we know this. We we know always going to be back at some point. <laughs> so, but I think I think there are certain things that are kind of like part of the Green Lantern mythology, and you just kind of need that, and you kind of need you need some guardians. You don't necessarily need an endless supply, but you need at least a handful of guardians who are sane and who are rational. Kind of like Ganthet and Sade, and add, you know, add in a couple more that have you know some, some real personalities, and you need at least that. I think as a moral compass to help. Besides the knowledge, the fact that they have so much knowledge, and when the guardians aren't there, especially now that the central power battery, you know, has been destroyed and drained, destroyed, put back together, all this, but you know, the knowledge is probably not there the way it was without the guardians. So, for my money, if we're talking the current series, the the, the what we're talking about, what's currently happening in the books, I think the guardians are necessary just because by villainizing the guardians, you villainize the Green Lantern Corps. Mm-hmm. Be- because the Green Lantern Corps is this benevolent peace force in the universe, and everybody knows who the Green Lantern Corps is, but the ranks within the Green Lantern Corps constantly change. Yes, you might have heard of names like Sinestro or Hal Jordan or something like that, but by and large, it's a ever-evolving group of people. The legitimacy and the acceptance of the universe for the most part, by allowing the Green Lantern Corps to police them and accepting and recognizing their authority comes from the universe's history with and trust of 
the Guardians, not the Green Lantern Corps. Mm-hmm. And by villainizing the Guardians like Johns did, yes, interesting story, but he hit a point of no return, and by damaging the reputation of the Guardians, you destroy the reputation of the Green Lantern Corps. Right. So, I mean, it's if you if if the Green Lanterns went off and did their own thing, you know, much in the same vein as 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 the Manhunters, then the Guardians could still come out and go, oh, actually, you know, that was there was an there was an arrow, there was you know, there was something, there's there's some sort of error, you know, whatever it was, whatever excuse they came up with, mm-hmm. and the universe would still, albeit sort of timidly, but still trust the Guardians. But when you destroy the Guardians' reputation, everything else that they've ever been a part of, you know, collapses. So, you know, even though you have these new Guardians, <laughs> to quote-unquote, uh, happening right now, these Templar Guardians that came after the, the Johns run, they're still Guardians. The universe doesn't know they're new Guardians that, you know, were separated from the universe as a whole and never corrupted by their, you know, crazy-ass brethren. Um, but the universe doesn't know that. So the, the Green Lantern Corps is still in a place of nobody trusts them, which is why you currently get stuff like people going, yeah, the Sinestro Corps can take care of us. <laughs> right. So, but there's, there, and there's that. But on the other side, on the other, other, other hand of it, not to thinking about the current stuff, you, you mentioned earlier, Ryan, about me covering the Green Lantern Green Arrow stuff. And part of the reason I like that is because not only was the Green Lantern sales stagnating and we were getting all these, you know, crazy space stories and stuff like that. One of the points of that series was bringing Hal back down to Earth and making him very aware, put, putting it in his face that you were failing. There's a whole lot more happening than just someone threw a punch or some crazy lunatic is about to set off a bomb or the shark is attacking, you know, whatever. There's more happening to your brothers here on Earth. Not only did he do that, but what kind of gets overlooked in that series is Denny O'Neill did the same thing with the Guardian. Mm -hmm. Denny O'Neill brings a Guardian off of their little throne down to Earth, depowers him, and eventually he gets to the point where he chooses to save Hal Jordan's life over saving the impact on the ecosystem. There's There's an issue where some... Uh, a barge carrying chemicals catches on fire and Hal Jordan gets wounded and the Guardian has limited power and he can either save Hal or stop this potential econo- uh, environmental uh, disaster. And he chooses to save Hal and he's reprimanded for it and stripped of his immortality <laughs> and then deposited. This is actually where we get the reveal that the Guardians were born on Maltus and it's a, it's a whole thing. Like, uh, Denny O'Neill is famous, and he's actually said this to me one-on-one in an interview before. Denny O'Neill is famous for not liking writing godlike characters. Mm-hmm. But look what he does to a Guardian. <laughs> like, he, he, he handles it as well as can be expected for someone who doesn't like writing a god. Mm-hmm. So, yes, the, the GLGA series is really well known for all the social... And political issues that it tackles of the 1970s and the stuff it does to Hal and the and the things it shakes up within that book and makes people more aware of more than just silly cosmic comic stories but more real issues. But there also is a huge Guardian story happening in the background. This Guardian actually ends up going insane. <laughs> There's a whole lot that happens and that's part of the reason that 
I guess this particular story couldn't be just from, you know, from the whole Roy Thomas reimagining. It couldn't be just ripped from Green Lantern 40. It couldn't just be ripped from what we get of the backstory of the Guardians when they strip old timer of his immortality and send him to Maltus. There's pieces of Guardian history revealed throughout the DC you know, the history of the DC universe, various issues here and there. Mm-hmm. All the way up into the Jeff Johns era where they go during Blackest Night, oh yeah, we lied to you, life didn't begin on Maltus, it began on Earth. <laughs> you know, like, and we held that secret from you. It's a, it's, and it's a whole continuous thing, you know? The, the, the parallax wasn't how Jordan got mad, he was a being of fear, and we made a deal with this uh, this creature over in the the Vegas system or whatever and uh, he's been possessing this orange power all this all this time and oh by the way we massacred the the the, the manhunters didn't attack us Krona had this rogue thing and they massacred Sector Six 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 and it was our fault you know and, it was, and but so- trust us. <laughs> Just trust us. <laughs> and I don't I don't like them being vilified, but some of those secrets I like. Like, I, I mentioned mm. this on the last episode when I was talking to Jeff about the Manhunters. Like, that is one of my favorite stories from all of the Green Lantern sort of lore, is the turn of, the betrayal of the Manhunters as mm-hmm. part of, like, and for me that goes back to, it's, it's a Frankenstein story, that the Guardians created this artificial life form that then found that the Guardians were itself the problem with, with the universe. And it led to this whole sort of rejection metaphor and this betrayal. And I just, I love that idea that they created this robot police force as a, their beta test, essentially. It mm-hmm. went horribly wrong. They had to shelf that one, and then they created the Green Lantern Corps. I like that bit about that the, the Guardians had that sort of, that secret original sin that they would hide. Mm. And eventually, it would come to light, and so that they're not perfect, they're not they're not flawless saints, hmm. but they're not horrible, vindictive, miserable people either, and they are willing to learn from their mistakes. There's a there's a novel out there called Heroes Quest, uh, which was written by Denny O'Neill, and it focuses on on Kyle Rayner, and the Guardians are actually the villains in this story, and they are kind of reshaping the universe to their own ends because they discovered art on our planet and they're trying to understand it. (laughs) And so they're like, well, uh, to make the universe uh, beautiful, about 99.999% of all life forms in the entire cosmos is going to die because we're going to make this artwork. And well, why do you think you have the right to do this? Because we were here first. It, they, they refer to a concept that we have on our own planet called homesteaders' rights. <laughs> we, were, we were here first, so we have the right to do with the universe what we will, damn the life of everybody else. And I think that in the 80s, in stories like Millennium, even though they're benevolent and they're trying to do the right thing, you kind of get the sense that the Guardians, especially in this era, I mean, they're bossy little blue jerks you know throughout the silver age and stuff like that but in this era it kind of takes a more of a too big for their britches kind of mentality where they start ordering people around and like you know there's there's in the millennium series when when harupa and uh, nadi showed up show up outside the the green lantern Corps citadel in california hal greets uh uh uh, harupa with a hug and nadi is like don't presume to touch me (laughs) you know like 
you know, that's that that's a really small moment, but that kind of gives you an encapsulation of of their mentality. Mm-hmm. Not just Zamorans, but just these immortal little farts who think that they own everything uh, and they have the right to do with what they will. I mean, think if you think of Millennium in that context, they are coming down to Earth and going, "We are going to select." the best of you <laughs> like we have the only we are the only ones who have this knowledge and as such we are the only ones who should have the right to decide which of you is going to get it on a story front you know kind of makes sense because you know they're benevolent they're immortal they're wise they've been here a long time but you kind of have to think of the other side of it where you're like who the hell are you right to, to tell us as humans who who you haven't really interacted with at all outside of your little Green Lantern Corps, who are you to tell us who the best of us is? Why can't we decide that? You know, like, why don't we have any input? Like, that's kind of throughout the whole mess of Millennium. That's kind of what I was thinking is like, why doesn't why don't any in this? You know, so that's I think that despite the benevolence, despite, despite the power, despite the respect that these immortals have garnered over the years, I think in the eighties, you get this, like I said, too big for their britches mentality. One other thing, and I, I know we're about to wrap up, but I just found it interesting. And I mentioned to this, you a, a moment ago, uh, a little while ago, Ryan, within this very issue, we actually get told by someone named Peter Sanderson, what the true, like the first appearance of the guardians was. And I had no idea. <laughs> Me and Mark co-host a Green Lantern podcast, and I had no idea. <laughs> Evidently, he the, the Guardians appear for the, the Guardians of the Universe, labeled such, appear in a Captain Comet story in Strange Adventures number 22. And, by the way, I just started, since I just uh, started listening to the Jonah Hex Black Condor episode, you lead off saying this is dedicated to Murphy Anderson. These guardians were artistically created by Murphy Anderson. So uh, not the ones we specifically know, but the ones here in this Captain Comet story. So right. artistically created by, uh, by Murphy Anderson, uh, written by John Broom, edited by my hero, Julie Schwartz. It's a whole thing. But these two are like, just to read from this thing, it says the universe. So one of their dialogues is, um, the universe is like a clock. If any part of it fails or changes position, the entire mechanism may stop. And then skipping forward, we guardians are not men of action. Always in past emergencies, we have found someone else like yourself with great powers and a hatred of evil to serve us. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's so, them. A little bit of a beta test, but yeah, that's them. Yeah, ev- evidently that's them. So <laughs> I learn something new every time we talk about the Guardians, regardless of whether they reveal some dirty secret of their past or I'm reading an issue of Secret Origins. <laughs> Mark, uh, any final thoughts or any uh, any recommendations for good Green Lantern stories that you would you would promote, whether they be Guardian-centric or not? Well, I almost feel compelled to mention the Ion story because of, because of Chad and we just recorded it. <laughs> Power of Ion. That would be a good jumping. That'd be a good if you if you have liked Kyle Rayner especially, but you didn't necessarily read everything about Kyle when he was the only Green Lantern. That would be a good one. If uh, obviously, if you're a Green Lantern fan in general, regardless of what you think of the story and the and whether it should have been done, Emerald Twilight's an important story to read. <laughs> I'm going for big ones off the top of my head. I'm clearly Rebirth is something that should be read. Over well, Chad and I both like Emerald Knights. Mm-hmm. That's a good one with Hal and Kyle. Mm-hmm. Time lost Hal Jordan. Sentence. 
dealing with in in the court in the present with with Kyle back in the in the nineties. Uh, just reiterating what he's talking about: the power of Ion. That's Green Lantern one forty five through uh, one fifty. Although there's smatterings and hints of it uh, in the issues leading up to that. The best Kyle Rayner characterization story ever, in my opinion. And by the way, for a character like John Stewart, that we don't ever get a solid characterization of him. I think that's one of the failings of of the of the Green Lantern mythos is John Stewart has never really been fleshed out uh, and maintained a certain characterization uh, for a long time. There is one extremely good John Stewart characterization issue in there. Um, overall, I would just recommend, we've already talked about it in this episode, Green Lantern number 40 from the Silver Age. Not only do you get a good Green Lantern uh, story, you also get a good uh, Silver Age, Golden Age team-up story. You get a good origin of the, the, of the Guardians, and you get a good origin of the DC Universe in terms of what would what crisis the scenes that crisis would come to use as their whole explanation for why the multiverse exists in the first place. So it's a good... As much as people go, oh man, if you're going to read a, a Flash story, you have to read Flash 123, Flash of Two Worlds. If you're going to read Green Lantern, you got to read one uh, issue 40 at some point. And well, I mentioned it. Uh, it's it's a novel, so <laughs> there are some people who read comics who just have let it overtake their, their reading habit. Uh, but if you're still reading novels, Denny O'Neill's Green Lantern Heroes Quest. I cannot say it enough. Um Shout out to Michael Bailey, by the way, for back when he was on the, the Alan Scott uh, episode, which he did phenomenally on. Mm-hmm. But he mentioned this Sleepers storyline that uh, Graphic Audio did an, an interpretation of, those, yep. th- those, those three novels, which I echo everything Michael Bailey said about Graphic Audio, and I echo everything he said about Sleepers. Graphic Audio also did an interpretation of Hero's Quest. I have read the novel several times, and I have listened to the graphic audio representation at least twice those several times I've read the novel itself. Love that story. And I know I sort of spoiled everything already for you in the, in the episode about that, but it's, it's still definitely worth, worth checking out. And just as a whole, despite the fact that Johns villainizes the, the, um, the Guardians, the good moments that you get with the Guardians – in reference to Ganthet and Sade, you know, with the the benevolent side of the Guardians that still exists in one or two of their members, the secrets that they keep and why they keep them when it's colored by the perspective of Ganthet and Sade, the John's run is still a good Guardians characterization. And last but not least, of course, Green Lantern, Hard Traveling Heroes. The Green Lantern, Green Arrow run, specifically with Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. All right, well, guys, thank you very much for being on this episode of Secret Origins. Assuming, you know, the listeners really loved hearing everything that you had to say about Green Lantern and want to hear more of it. <laughs> Bullshit. Or, 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 or at least 65% of it, maybe. <laughs> Let's not go for 100%. It can't be boom or bust. It's got to be a little bit in between. Well, where can they hear more about the Green Lantern comics from you guys? Well, if they need, if they'd like to contact us, first of all, they can just email us if they'd like to. Uh, lanterncast at gmail.com lanterncast at gmail.com our website is lanterncast.com surprisingly yes I know <laughs> uh, we have our episodes posted there we we do a ring a ring cyclopedia series where we basically do vid- video reviews of ring props and and rings and everything like that so that's pretty cool we have some comic book reviews where I can give some dark star reviews 
not quite Green Lantern, but but close enough. But controller ask. Uh, our podcast is obviously we're available on iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Hashtag GLCast. GLCast to find us on all of those. And we also have a voicemail. Not that people use it as often as we'd like, but who knows? Maybe maybe this will stir up some business. 708-Lantern. 708-Lantern. And you can leave us a voicemail, ask any questions, any episode requests or ideas. Feel free. Or tell us we suck. <laughs> Do that in writing, though. <laughs> Instead, I mean, I, I I listen to so many of these Secret Origins episodes, and I'm just kind of replaying ours in my mind. I'm just going, man, some of your guests come on way more prepared than we did. <laughs> we just we just kind of rambled incoherently. <laughs> we really stretched Ryan's format this time around. So I'm sorry to regular listeners of Secret Origins. You know, but, I, I'm going to cut this down to a half an hour, so they're never going to know. <laughs> But, you know, at least we're having fun rambling and not just kind of – crazy reference. But did you ever watch Heroes, the TV show? I did, yeah. Okay. Do you remember Charlie who had that whole little th- thing where she just remembered every fact ever and just wouldn't stop talking? Mm, vaguely. Hero Nakamura's like redheaded waitress chick in Texas he comes yeah. across. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's Frank. <laughs> <laughs> we ramble because we just they popped into our heads and we just want to share the information frank sounds like he's on autopilot sometimes yeah, just... so, between the two of us uh between the three of us in this episode outside of ryan sorry guys <laughs> there's gonna be two different kinds of rambling in this episode and you know what it's all in great fun and it's all about comics so just enjoy it if you like the more analytical approach that frank's gonna give you fantastic if you like us just going off the deep end and random tangents lanterngas.com <laughs> <laughs> thank you again thank you very much for being part of this episode guys i had a lot of fun so do we thank you for having us <laughs> thank you sir all right don't go away listeners because after the break diablo frank and i are going to cover the origin of the floronic man why <laughs> Because we just can't help ourselves. (laughs) Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. One is the man of tomorrow powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader, carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile, let's go! Up! Up and away. Atomic batteries turbines to speed. Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. 
we're back, listeners, and we've got one more origin to cover, and then we can never talk about Millennium again on this podcast. Joining me for this necessary evil, once again, from the Power of the Atom podcast, among many others, is Diablo Frank. Welcome back to the show, Frank. Ah, you know, it's, uh, great to, it's great to be here, Ryan. <laughs> Full to, of enthusiasm. Uh, you can just hear it radiating off of him. It's great to talk about Floronic Man after Guardians of the Universe during a Millennium Week 6 tie-in. That's... Uh, uh, you, you, you money in the mail as soon as possible. The check needs to be in the mail already, dude. And if it bounces, oh, dear God, I'm going to cast like a voodoo hex on you. I swear to God. He'll or do it. some other you know, archaic being. I He'll don't do know. it, people. He's crazy. Uh, as Frank just told you, we are talking about Floronic Man, or as he was originally called, Jason Woodrew, a.k.a. the Plant Master, or as he was later called, Plant Master the Floronic Man, or as he was called in New Guardians, Floro, or as he is currently known, Cedar. Holy crap, this guy has as many name changes Hank Pym, Carol Danvers, and Monica Rambeau. They just keep trying to find the right one to make him just catch on fire. Well, but each identity gets worse than the one before it. I mean, I like Plant Master. It's a good, cool, Silver Age sound. And I, I like that better than Floronic Man, and I like that a whole lot better than Floro. That doesn't tell me anything. So. The cedar sounds like – it sounds like something inappropriate is all I got to say. I, 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 when I hear a guy called the cedar, it's either going to be like some kind of like low-budget serial killer story or it's a comedy about artificial insemination starring, you know, I don't know. Did Veronica uh, Salt have a song called Cedar in the 90s or was that Seether? <laughs> That was Seether, and hey, man, I'm a big Rook Assault fan, so don't, don't mess with my girls now. I don't know if it's a theme, too, because the last time I talked to Shag, he was doing the same thing to me. Somehow that came up. I don't know what the hell's going on. <laughs> okay, well, you are a fan of the Adam. Floronic Man debuted as an Adam villain. Is that where you first encountered him, or did you know him more from Swamp Thing or his other appearances? I, I, good question. I hadn't really thought about that. I'm pretty sure I, I was introduced to him through Swamp Thing. If I recall correct, maybe, maybe. I, yeah, I think so. For some reason, you know, when I was growing up, there were no comic shops. The concept of a comic shop was like really a fascinating thing once it dawned on me that such things existed. So most of my comic books came from, you know, neighborhood convenience stores and grocery stores and three packs and occasional toy store stuff. But for some reason, the the even by that point, I think there was a suggestion for Mature Reader Swamp Thing. Every now and again, one of those would trickle onto the 7-Eleven newsstand. And I, I got one issue that was, uh, if I recall correctly, it was one that had Batman in it, where he's fighting Killer Croc, and Floronic Man is involved with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was a cool issue. A, a lot of blood, which I was not used to from newsstand comic books. And it was definitely more sophisticated than I was prepared to deal with, having grown up on like Chris Claremont X-Men and stuff. But I could say the Floronic Man made an impression because when he turned up in Millennium, it was like, oh, hey, that's that guy. So he meant something to me. But it was literally decades later before I read any actual, like, the seminal works of the Cedar. (laughs) Well, technically, even though I had no idea that that's who this character was, I'm going to say the first time I learned of this character or the first time I heard the name was in the movie Batman and Robin. Jason Woodrow was played by John Glover and played a part in the origin of Poison Ivy in that movie. Which which they later retconned into the comic books as well. Yeah, yeah. And while nothing about that movie is, you know, worth spending a lot of time thinking about, I did like the look of him as Jason Woodrow. He had this crazy hair, 
with these big white streaks that weren't like at his temples. They were almost like racing stripes down like the center just above his eyebrows. It was sort of like a crazy prototype of uh, Lionel Luthor, the way he looked in that movie. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And I've, I love that actor. I've been a fan of his since Gremlins 2, The New Batch. So. Yeah, me too. That's what I think we're at the first time that I saw him. And then, yeah, once I started getting into DC like about 10 or 11 years ago when I read uh, Showcase Presents the Atom Volume 1, that was the first time I kind of saw him in comics and eventually found this version of him, the more recognizable version. Giving our listeners a brief history of the character's publication life, the Floronic Man, so-called, debuted in Atom Number 1, published on April 24, 1962. Created by writer Gardner Fox and artists Gil Kane and Murphy Anderson, Floronic Man's first appearance was as the very human-looking Jason Woodrew. Despite looking human, Woodrew came from an otherworldly dimension populated by dryads, or wood sprites, he was banished to Earth and used his powers to control plants in his first battle with the Atom, and again in Atom issue 24 and Justice League of America issue 61. Those three appearances could have been all for Jason Woodrew, but in the mid-70s he returned in the Green Lantern backup strips in Flash 245 and 246. This time Woodrew exposed himself to a formula that made him a human-plant hybrid. Looking for all intents and purposes, like a naked man with tree bark for skin and green leaves for hair covering his scalp and his junk. After that, he joined the Secret Society of Supervillains, appearing in the series of the same title, as well as an issue of Super Team Family, which was really good, I have it, and some great Justice League of America stories. Perhaps his most significant storyline was in Alan Moore's Saga of the Swamp Thing, first appearing in The Anatomy Lesson in issue 21, and then a story arc over the next three issues where he tried to wipe out humanity by over-oxygenating the Earth. After that, he appeared briefly in Crisis on Infinite Earths, as well as a few other issues of Swamp Thing and Doctor Fate, before the Millennium crossover event began. And we can talk about his role in Millennium after the story, or not at all, I don't care. Uh, was there anything that you wanted to add to that publication history? Nah, back end it. Okay. All right, then are you ready to talk about the story? Yeah, in brief, I think, because I, I think that this is the kind of story that your your major enjoyment of it requires you to actually be the one to read it. I don't think it's a story that benefits very much from summary. The basics is that it opens in Arkham Asylum, and it opens on Killer Croc, which is you know, counterintuitive, but it, it works for the way the story is being told. Apparently in some story arc, it might have actually been that issue I was talking about, because again, Killer Croc was in that issue of Swamp Thing. <laughs> Killer Croc has been exposed to some sort of nerve gas that has left him completely invalid. He just, he sits in a chair with an IV in him, and he watches the criminals of Arkham Asylum pass him by, mostly ignoring him because he's essentially in a vegetative state to all appearances, but his mind is still functioning fully and he's taking in all these characters and kind of giving you his opinions on the people that he shares time with. Plus, there's some really nice sensory descriptions of some of the characters. I've never liked Tweedledee and Tweedledum, but the way that uh, writer Rick Veach describes them, I, I, I really kind of was turned on by. It's just, I can smell them is, I guess, the best way to say it. That totally creeps you out if you don't understand the context. And this was drawn by Brett Ewing. And I, Brett Ewing, I know, has done a lot of British comics. I know he's done stuff for 2000 AD. But do you know anything specific that he's done? Because I, I forgot to research him before we started. He did Screamer. He did a few random issues of, like, Animal Man and Hellblazer, things like that. I think that's the main thing I knew him from. I knew I had heard that name somewhere. And as soon as you said Screamer, it fit, finally clicked into place for me. 
It's interesting because he's got a lot of British credits, but he doesn't really look like he's ready for prime time in this story. It, it, but it kind of works for it because it feels like a couple of guys who aren't supposed to be doing superhero stories kind of sneaking in the back door and doing kind of their own thing, this sort of indie punkish kind of thing with company characters. So I'm not a huge fan of the art, but it, it works for this particular tale, I think. Yeah, I'd agree. So anyway, so uh, we we've got the, the the murderers row of all the uh, Batman major Batman rogues or a lot of the major rogues, and then at the end you see Floronic Man literally standing in a toilet, which given that he's the Floronic Man, I, I like to think wasn't flushed, a little fertilizer in with the hydration. <laughs> And he's just sort of like relishing being in a basin of water. But then you've got these Gestapo-ish fascistic guards that, you know, grab him by his head foliage, his hair, whatever you want to call it, and just jerk him out because you only get three minutes in the bathroom and the next guy is ready for his spot. So while he's sort of standing around waiting for other guys to have their toilet time, uh, Killer Croc, with what little faculties he has at this point in time, essentially begs for Rockman to tell him a story because while he's heard the ramblings of the various uh, inmates at Arkham Asylum plenty of times. He always enjoys listening to Floronic Man the most. He, he, Floronic Man tells the best stories. And uh, as you mentioned, he starts telling a story of this other dimension with dryads and there's a pan figure and he paints the queen of this place as basically it's like she's Obama. It's like in in his world, she's like the, the totality of evil because she wants to enforce horrible things like peace and harmony. So clearly she's a Nazi communist. But then the imagery is switched where Floronic Man in his Jason Woodrow persona is the fascistic person who's bringing a better, higher calling to these silly little, you know, forest creatures. And he's got his banners going and he's going to show them how to make this world something worthwhile. And you see him traverse dimensions, and he lands in 1960s America, where he becomes Jason Woodrow and tries to conquer the Earth and battles the Silver Age Adam. And that doesn't work out for him. And then he has a second adventure in our world. He likes to point out that the Queen of the Naiads prostituted herself to Ray Palmer in order to, to secure his aid, which I'm not quite sure is how that story played out. And, uh, you know, the whole Jason Woodrow thing just does not work great for uh, this guy in our world, the whole fighting the atom thing doesn't work. So he decides to completely change the script up. So you're reflecting a couple of backup stories from Flash comics that featured Green Lantern. In the 70s, he sucks down a, a potion, becomes the Floronic Man, and you know battles Green Lantern. He actually apparently has Green Lantern on the ropes, but the way he says it, he wasn't gloating and telling the hero his plan, you know, Austin Powers versus Dr. Evil style. He was actually trying to educate this hero and, and educate the Guardians and see that he is this guy who's, a, who's an avatar for plant life, and he's trying to, to allow plant life its, its full breadth of, of growth and not, not have it be hampered by humanity. And he's hoping that maybe the Guardians would be able to get on board with that and recognize that plant life deserves their support as well. But instead, their thug, their willpower-enabled uh, thug, freezes the Floronic Man and puts him on ice and... He tries to pretend like he fits in with society. He manages to concoct a, a latex that covers his barky 
pseudo skin and pretend to be human. He hates it. He, it doesn't work for him. But thankfully, the wizard shows up and brings him into the secret society of supervillains, which is one of the coolest things that, that have ever has ever come out of my mouth. I love saying secret society of supervillains. Um, so he joins them. And in fact, if you, if you follow the Florida Adventures, one of the main books he's appeared in over the years was the, the 15 issue run of that, that series. He was in the majority of the issues. Not that he contributed very much. And then there's allusions to the Christ on Infinite earth which apparently busted up continuity nobody can quite remember what happened but it it what there was this killjoy moment where the four eyed man didn't get to have fun battling superheroes anymore so then we get into the anatomy lesson we get to see what alan moore did to the character how basically woodrue revealed to the swamp thing that he was not a man who was turned into a plant but a plant who was convinced that he was in he was a man and we, they retell that Alan Moore story very vaguely, though. I, I think that they they were really trying to avoid ruining anything that came after the anatomy lesson, whereas the Floronic Man is actually in the first extended arc of Swamp Thing over a course of about three or four issues, the ones you referred to, which are really cool. It, it's an interesting view of the Justice League in those stories and an interesting way of approaching those characters that very much informed Grant Morrison's pantheon take that we saw in JLA in the late 90s. And then we, we were brought back to the present and we're brought back to the visions of godhood that the Floranic Man has had planted in his mind by the Guardians of the Universe and the Zamorans, which is the big millennium tie-in. The less said about that, the better. And then the Floranic Man just disappears and we're back to Killer Croc, a Killer Croc story where Killer Croc miraculously and with no explanation has begun to heal apparently through his his reptilian qualities that he was born with and uh, he just decides to keep that on the down low he doesn't tell anybody what's going on with Floronic Man he doesn't tell anybody what's going on with him and he just sort of plays it off uh, anticipating his next opportunity to strike fear and terror in the hearts of Gotham citizens and beat the hell out of Batman again Which, again, is very weird because the Floronic Man checks out like three or four pages before the end of the story. And you're back to Killer Croc. And Killer Croc doesn't have any sort of real resolution to his story. So it's sort of like they tried to have some sort of an O. Henry thing going on. some kind of a little twist. But they never found that twist. So it just sort of alludes to a twist that doesn't actually exist. Yeah, it's it's a weird framing device that is disproportionately too much, too big. Like, the story is 17 pages we spend seven of those 17 with Croc kind of just dealing with life in Arkham and these, these other characters. Um, so only like 10 of the pages are like kind of going over Woodrow's history. This story is kind of a direct continuation of Swamp Thing issue 66. That was the one where Batman captured Croc and, and paralyzed him with a, a nerve gas. And that was Swamp Thing 66. I think that was Rick Veach's like second issue writing the book. So, yeah, these all kind of came pretty close together. And you mentioned the art wasn't as strong. I, I like the art when he's dealing with the story and the flashbacks and sort of the 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 less structured panels that are more like kind of montage-like when we're going through the history of the characters. I like those a little bit more than the simple, you know, ordered rectangular panels that we get in the framing device. Yeah, it's it's also weird seeing all those Silver Age characters rendered in a in a very eighties pseudo edgy style. It's not really edgy; it's more crude, mm-hmm. but it's still kind of cool to see them 
uh, translated through that skein of, of the, the the bleeding edge cool of eighties comics, you know that kind of thing. So I like the way he depicts the atom, I, especially in that that panel when he's in the Venus flytrap on page six. I that atom looks tough. He looks badass. He's got kind of like the snarl, like kind of like scrunched up face. The atom is badass. Uh, so I it's, do, I like the character. Not the badass is the is where they. But make mistakes. He, he's naturally going to be the coolest guy if you're doing him right. So I just props to him for doing the character right. Uh, at the same time, not crazy about how they draw Jean, but she looks like some sort of emaciated shrew being, which is, I guess, sort of a reflection of Jean's inner self. But she was kind of hot on the outside in those old comics. So yeah. So the fascist imagery that we get from Woodrow when he's kind of dealing with his ideas back in the the flashbacks had that ever been depicted visually before this like i don't think i've read the second uh, appearance in in adam like 24 i I haven't either i was actually going to try to do it uh tonight and i didn't get the chance to do it but i flipped through it and no not not no i think that it it was just a lazy way of of contrasting woodrow's approach versus the hippie love children uh age of aquarius kind of stuff that was going on in dryad land because mm-hmm. uh, those characters as depicted in the first story are absolutely the cutesy peter pan type of of imagery you know it's the little green outfits and you're, you're picturing them on a stage with wires on their backs it's ex- exactly what you would imagine when that's conjured up in your mind and i, I honestly this is the thing that i have with this story is this story is everything that we as people who are reading and commenting on Secret Origins say we want from Secret Origin, and it just doesn't quite get it right because it, it isn't just the origin. They make a point of giving you a nice overview of the character's entire history, and they also try to come at it through a, a modern sensibility and try to sell this character to new audiences, and they try to put a little twist on it so it's not just a regurgitation but something, something more fresh. But it doesn't work because you're giving an overview of the character through two unreliable narrators because it's actually second generation narrator it's killer croc telling you what floor rock man supposedly told him and because most people aren't going to be familiar with the convoluted history of this character they're not going to know what actually was in the comics and what wasn't and again this being a post-crisis comic it might have been the intention was that was supposed to be a legitimate version of these events in the in the modern context so it's just kind of a mess because you don't really know where the story is supposed to stand and because they go through such for such lazy imagery like the fascistic stuff mm-hmm. it's like why would he want to look like a 1940s earth fascist when he comes from another dimension uh, and and in, as depicted in that story he's another one of these cute fairy beings too so it's trying too hard to be cool and it's it's not giving you any of the things that we really want because we can't rely on this story this isn't us being told what really happened to this character it's all twisted up and as we said it's just sort of peters out it doesn't properly end so there's a lot of good intentions in terms of being daring with the story and and setting it apart from other secret origins but it just fails in so many ways that you feel bad for misleading these guys into thinking that this is the sort of thing they should have done where they probably should have just done a straight origin or, or a uh, narrative recap. I understand they want to set him up for what's going to come in Millennium, but they also can't reveal what becomes of him in Millennium. So it, it does leave him in this weird place where it just takes him off the board. And then we're left with a couple pages of... It's like why? Why is Croc telling the story at all? I don't. It's, it's, this is just Rick Veach like playing out story threads that he seeded earlier. Eh, seeded. Uh, Word, wordplay. Uh, um, but yeah, this it, is also this is 
this is a story that Roy Thomas had nothing to do with this one, so they don't have the same thing, but they could have done some retcons with this character's history because it's he like with I, I made fun of how many names this guy has had, but all of like the weird tricks that he's gone through, like why was he an other dimensional being from like this land of like wood sprites? Okay, I get it. It was a story from 1962, the Silver Age. That was fine, but you bring him back. He looks human, and then he becomes this tree-like creature. If you're going to stay with the the fact that he's not human, he comes from this other dimension. Then maybe merge that into how he looks now, and that's more of like his true form. I don't know. The character's a mess. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the thing is. is if the whole point of the crisis was to get rid of a lot of the dead wood, but um, bump, um, then don't include all this stuff in the secret society of supervillains, which ultimately ended up being retconned out of existence and then re-retconned back into existence because nerds. And uh, um, just get rid of all that stuff because basically at this point in time and for, for some time to come once the Millennium nonsense was out of the way, the Floronic Man was sort of Swamp Thing's kingpin. This is a guy who was created to fight other people. And he was firmly entrenched into a more fantastic universe, but he was later repurposed for one specific story, for one specific purpose, and it worked so well that that was the the new model for this character. This character, as everybody knows him, was created to be in the Anatomy Lesson by Alan Moore. He was created to be a Swamp Thing foil. He's the guy who is the, the dark mirror of Swamp Thing where he – started out as a man and he wants to be the champion of the green but the fact is he thinks more like a man than he does like nature and so he keeps trying to push the green to do things that aren't in its nature and alienates himself from the thing that he's embraced the most that's the story that you need to tell with this character and you need to let all that other stuff fall by the wayside that's a whole different character you don't you don't need that you know, this is a guy who, if you look at his, his his full history, he's appeared in like three dozen Swamp Thing issues, okay, across multiple incarnations of the character, whereas he's appeared in a few Justice League stories. He was in Secret Society of Supervillains where he didn't really do a lot, but stand in the background. This is when a, a point in time where super team formulas were so ingrained in, in the nerd consciousness that you had to have a plant guy on a team, like you had to have a fire guy. And it's like, why do you have a plant guy? Because the other guy had a plant guy this uh, this team has a plant guy so he was just sort of there to be there so you don't need to reference that stuff he was in a couple of adam adventures and i swear to you the adam is a character that i i think is hugely detrimentally affected by the fact that he has no rogues gallery of note the last thing this guy needs is to have any core member of his really super pathetic rogues gallery taken from him but that happened already this is a Swamp Thing character. You got to just let that other stuff go or just make that a whole other character. The Plant Master is this whole other guy who has his whole other story and make that your, your post-crisis Adam villain and then let Swamp Thing have the Floronic Man because that's the only place that character makes sense. He certainly does not make sense being part of a super team where the New Guardians is, is infamous for being the most whack, dumb, misguided team concept ever this is a thing where you got a writer who had clearly burnt out on green lantern core and they decided to just like double down on the goofy and nobody there there's no such thing as a new guardians fan there's only commentators there's only people who just want to tell you about the, the the moronic choices made by that book which 
remember, this is like 1988, 1989. This is a book that spun out of the major crossover of DC Comics of that year. It was a weekly event. It was eight issues across two months, and the book only lasted a year. That didn't happen with DC books not called Sonic Disruptors back then. <laughs> DC book got two years Minimum, almost minimum, if they were going to launch a new series. So you have to suck in some pretty spectacular ways to only make it to the one-year mark and, and then be axed. And New Guardians did that with foul, stank aromas. I did, Whatever the opposite of flying colors is, it did that. Yeah, but they had Tom Kalmaku. <laughs> they had Pie Face, man. This, are you trying to build on my point? Is that what you're trying to do by bringing that up? You know, I, I remember that that was the, the that was the epic miniseries that starts out with trying to retcon why the Eskimo character was named Pie Face, so that <laughs> Hal Jordan wasn't a scumbag racist creep who has sex with underage alien girls. Wait, didn't work. Yeah, I think that ship sailed. Um, so going back to your point, like I like Floronic Man as an Adam villain. I really like that. Or as the the Swamp Thing villain. Either way, what I don't like him as is a Batman villain. I, I don't like <laughs> That's him. That's one of those uh, low watermarks with this character, though. The, the the story that really solidified him as the Batman villain was, what was it, a three-issue arc that Alan Grant did in 1996 where he's revived through the power of hemp. This is the one where he tries to enslave the youth of America by creating super marijuana. I kid you not. And, and it's story? a this is the same one where he'd been decapitated, and so he sort of like grew this vine body out, and then he's hanging out with a poison ivy, and he's too much of a radical environmentalist for poison ivy. It's, it's a different kind of story, and it, it was drawn during that period where DC Comics could not find a decent artist to draw a Batman story. It's, it, it was just a really rough period, but it is so cool. There's actually a countdown on the internet where they're like the top, like high times superheroes and supervillains. And, and this is the one thing that the Floronic Man was number one on because he had the plot to, to uh, have the super marijuana hit the streets and they were down for that. So it's an interesting character for sure. But yeah, not what you want to be doing with Batman. We don't want Batman to fight the, the Woody Harrelson of supervillains. Okay. And Batman has a plant-based villain already. He doesn't need one. Yeah, like, and this guy doesn't need to be a female character being co-opted by a male character that's less than her. Right, and Floronic you know, Man doesn't need to be locked up in right. Arkham Asylum. He's not a human. He should be in like Bell Rev or Bell Reeve, whatever the metahuman prison is, with a Suicide Squad. Well, the French guy sells Bell Rev, and the uh, movie sell Bell, say Bell Reeve, so. Cisco has made a point of letting us know it's supposed to be Bell Rev, but that's what I always thought. I always thought it was Bell Rev, but it's been it's now officially pronounced Bell Reeve, and that's what you'll hear in the movie, from what I understand. Uh, well. Wow, I wish I was talking about a Suicide Squad episode of Secret Origins, Floronic <laughs> Man. But but I do want to say one other thing though, the plan because I, I from the sound of it, you reread the Adam Number One as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah I reread that today. Sick ass story. Oh, I love it. It's one of the best Adam stories of that time period, and it, it really ruined that book because it's this extraordinarily fantastic event that is not followed up on in any way throughout pretty much the rest of the series. It's like the most major thing that the Adam ever did up to that point, and then they totally dropped that and have him fight like guys in suits with guns for 30 issues afterward. So He meets a fairy princess, a fairy queen, basically. Which is another awesome thing because the thing you want a guy like the Adam to do is 
find ways to interact with other little Lilliputian beings that aren't superheroes to contrast against and to play around with the scale. Because if you always have him fight grown men in suits with revolvers, it gets really stale really quickly. And it's great to have like the super scientists get involved with this hardcore fantasy elements and having him try to, to deal with that. And no, totally drop the ball and, and ruin that series. Yeah. So. But the Plant Master was cool. Jason Woodrow in that first appearance is actually worth checking out. It's another one of those stories that's fun if for just pure Gonzo spectacle. But it's actually it's a pretty cool tale. Besides, it was a cool it was a cool gimmick. But I think he j- he fell into the trap where he was just another mad scientist. He had a cool gimmick, but like like yeah, he had three appearances in about five or ten years even, and it just wasn't going to go any further until they really radically altered his look and i like the design of like what he looks like as the floronic man the plant master guy it's it's a cool look most of the time when it's drawn well but let's not talk about millennium let's just pretend that that didn't happen that's what the rest of the world's done (laughs) any other recommended readings or stories with this character that would be better off reading than millennium or new guardians which really means anything, but anything that you would particularly highlight? Like I said, uh, The Atom Number 1 is a fun story about a character who's not the Floronic Man, so bringing it up just feels like a probably a bad idea. This is a guy who's been written by Gardner Fox, Alan Moore, Rick Feach, Mark Miller, Charles Soule, but it's mostly been in Swamp Thing comics. If you like Swamp Thing comics, go read those and don't bother with the instances where they try to treat this character as a DC property. He works better in that vertigo sphere, and I do still wish that that partition existed because he just belongs there. He does not belong to the DC universe. Yeah, I think his best Swamp Thing moments were in, you can probably find them in the first collection by Alan Moore because it was like issues 21 through 24. Just other stuff that I would recommend. I mean, if you find his appearances in Secret Society of Supervillains, um, I, I really liked his Secret Society of Supervillains appearances in Justice League of America. Uh, and I would especially spotlight issues 195 through 197, which were drawn by George Perez. Uh, that's collected in at least a couple different versions, like Crisis on Multiple Earths, I think volume 6. And I think there was a Justice League by George Perez collection. So I think it was inked by Brett Breeding on that one. And it, it goes to show what a good inker can do because that was like that was some of the best looking Perez work that wasn't inked by Perez himself. Um, it, it's just gorgeous to look at. And I, I imagine in a, in a quality hardcover reproduction, that would be even more fantastic. I, I've been stuck with newsprint all these years and it's still glorious. Yeah. All right. Any final thoughts on this character? No, I'm actually kind of regretting that I've had so many thoughts about the character for the last half hour. So, Frank, thank you very much for appearing on this episode. Where can people find you if they want to hear your thoughts on much better characters and much better stories than this one? Well, actually, the funny thing is the most obvious plug would be the Power of the Atom podcast, which uh, I'm trying to alternate between covering the Atom, the Tiny Titan, the Mighty Might, and Captain Adam, because uh, I, I like both those characters, and it's a, it seems to be something of a minority opinion. Um, and I, I'll be covering cool Plant Man stories on that podcast, which is very short. Uh, it, it's actually the, you know, a nice contrast between this podcast. It's like, this podcast, if you want that three-hour, uh, I want to uh, listen to it over the span of a few days, or I'm, I'm grocery shopping and I need something that's going to cover me the entire time, plus an oil change, then this is your podcast. If you want that one where you're just going to walk to Subway and back, probably not even back, just walk to the subway, and then you have to switch to another podcast, Power of the Atom is good for that. Usually they're under 10 minutes long, so we get in, we get out. 
I say we like anybody else ever has appeared on the thing. And uh, so it's just a nice little morsel. It's not like a full meal. It's a, it's it's the the little cheese cracker snack. And this is your your Thanksgiving dinner. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm sure I'll have you back in the future. This listener feedback section is going to be a little shorter than others because I've been sick for a couple of days. I did want to mention, though, that all the feedback we received for episode 22 was terrific. There was tons of support for the Manhunters issue and for Jeff's guest appearance. He did a great job, brought a lot of passion and enthusiasm for the issue. And that's what makes the show so successful and so rewarding. It's people who love these characters and love talking about them. And yes, I realize I'm saying that 30 seconds after the Floronic Man segment just ended. Anyway, uh, everyone loves the Archie Goodwin, Walt Simonson Manhunter series, and everyone thinks it would be a great movie or TV series. That's the big takeaway that was present in almost every comment we got. A few additional comments from the WordPress page. Mark Sweeney said, I've become something of a Millennium Defender of late, having recently reread the series and the not-quite-complete set of tie-in issues that I own. It no doubt has its problems, but I've always admired the execution of this weekly series and the editorial coordination it must have taken to crank out dozens of pretty tightly tied crossover issues. I actually find the issues of the core mini to be a more engrossing read than, say, Legends, which suffered from near-constant recap. What Legends has that Millennium doesn't, though, is a fantastic art team in John Byrne and Carl Kessel. I love Joe Staten, but he's not an event artist, and that was bad pairing between him and Ian Gibson on Millennium. I don't think many people will take your side on Millennium vs. Legends debate. Uh, Mark goes on, Jeff is right, the Kate Spencer series was quite excellent. Mark and Draco did as good a job as Roy Thomas in creating a cohesive Manhunter's mythology. Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks podcast said, First off, best music selections for the podcast so far. Well, you know, between a New Zealand musical comedy troupe, an 80s hair metal band, a 60s prog rock band, and Sting, I think I covered all of my bases. Rob Kelly from the Aquaman Shrine and the Fire and Water podcast said, I had no idea my former Qbert School instructor, Tex Blisdell, co-created the first Manhunter, the Secret Origins podcast. Learning is fun. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast said, I always liked this issue because it was so chock full of DC history. Millennium was a mess, with the whole thing being really just the launch of a lackluster team book no one wanted. But as Jeff pointed out, the parts were greater than the sum, and this issue isn't bad. Thomas does a good job of weaving all of this together, but then he's a master of that. It's true that he often doesn't know when to quit, but he did it nicely here. Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast said, My disdain for Millennium is all around the sleeper agents. That was a hook with no pull once you saw how there was no follow-through with characters with an extensive history. I wonder why no one ever created an alpha predator for the Manhunters. I would really like to hear the cry, No Manhunter escapes the Manhunter Hunters. Uh, Jeff Nettleton came back and said one element of Paul Kirk not brought up in the story, which we skipped, was that he actually started as a detective character who specialized in missing persons. It was called Paul Kirk Manhunter. That actually predates Dan Richards as Manhunter, though Paul Kirk was not yet a costumed adventurer. 
In the debut of the Simon and Kirby version, Manhunter was named Rick Nelson. Apparently, after his first mission, he went to a garden party to reminisce with his old friends, and Paul Kirk had to take over. Either that, or Ozzy objected to his new life and he had to give it up. Manhunter became Paul Kirk with the second issue of the run. Nice. Ange from the Supergirl blog said, Like Ryan, I want to not love Kirk's costume, especially the ridiculous boots, and yet somehow it all works. Amazed he hasn't been brought back. Was he zombified in the Blackest Night books? Good question. I don't remember. Probably. Um, Martin Gray from Too Dangerous for a Girl said, Really enjoyed the podcast, but I find the Manhunters boring to a man slash android. Isn't every superhero a Manhunter? But most others have interesting gimmicks and better costumes. And new commenter Edo Bosnar, sorry if I mispronounced that, Edo Bosnar said, I really enjoyed listening to this episode because I rather recently reread the Goodwin Simonson Manhunter saga for a review that's going to be published on another comics blog sometime soon. It was interesting getting some background on all of the other Manhunters, with which I am only familiar in passing, if at all. As to the costume, I have to take exception with Ryan's characterization of it as hideous. It is anything but. Outlandish? Yes, but not hideous. And as both of you pointed out, it just looks so damn good as rendered by Simonson. Episode 22 received Twitter favorites and retweets from Abel Padilla, Ange, Between the Pages, Callum Nar, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflections, Doug Zavisha, DS and RS, The Film and Water Podcast, Firestorm Fan, Greg Arujo, The Hammer Strikes, Keith G. Baker, Mark Sweeney, Martin Gray, Matthew Barton, Reading Hicks, Siskoid, Sin, Trekker Talk, and Warlord Worlds. If you mentioned the show on Twitter last week and I forgot to include your name, please let me know and I'll be sure to give you a shout-out next time. And on the Secret Origins Podcast Facebook page, new likes, shares, and mentions came from Anthony Durso, Clinton Robison, Comic Reflections, Gotham Shioran, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, Greg Barr, The Hammer Strikes, The Irredeemable Shag, Jimmy McClinchy, Keith G. Baker, Michael Wagner, Nicholas Prom, Richard Field, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, Sarah Sanders Burroughs, Sean Emmons, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Tim Wallace, Trekker Talk, Van Z, and Zeb Oswald. Richard Field commented, Ryan, I just want to say thank you for taking the time and producing these podcasts each and every week. It shows you care a lot about the source material, even if at times it's not that great of an issue. Your guests make me want to cry and laugh at the same time. It's a fun podcast each week, and I look forward to each new episode. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Richard. I love getting feedback like that. It makes the show so rewarding. You guys and gals are awesome. I really appreciate every comment, every share, every like, favorite, retweet, dig, poke, squiggle, all the weird things that you do to promote the show on social media. It is awesome, and I thank you. One final note before I wrap this up. The Secret Origins podcast will be going on a break after episode 25. There aren't any problems with the show other than the fact that it takes up a lot of time and energy, and I need some time to recharge. I'll still be putting out episodes of Flowers and Fishnets and Dead Bath and Spies, because there won't be any shortage of Star Wars material for the next couple of months, uh, but don't expect any new episodes of Secret Origins in December or January. Anyway, as always, I want to thank my guests, Chad Bokelman, Mark Marble, and Diablo Frank for appearing on this episode. Feedback for the show can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or at blackcanaryfan or the username Count Druncula. 
You can also email your feedback to blackcanaryfan at gmail.com, and please let me know if the message is private and you don't want it read on a future episode. The Secret Origins podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. We find ourselves a partner, someone to relate to, then we'll slow down, before we fall down, (laughs) we got stars Speaking of offshoots of Guardians, Leprechauns evidently are an offshoot of the Guardians. <laughs> but yes, seriously, guys, it's a real story. It's called Gambit's Tale. Go check it out. <laughs> People love that story. <laughs>